Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching. In this series, we will be studying the book of Malachi, where he gives a call to the people of God to return to the Lord. This book is full of hard rebuke and hopeful promise of the coming Messiah. We welcome you to subscribe and join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single Sunday.
So if you've had a chance to go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 4, go ahead and stand up as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow like fat, or grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in horror. For all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Let's pray. God, I pray that you be with each one of us this morning. I pray that you guide our hearts and guide our minds toward this second coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it gives us great excitement to know that you have been faithful through all of your word and through all of time. We know that history is the story of Jesus Christ and the working out of your will being done. God, what a awesome portion of your word to be studying the book of Malachi, to see what you had capstone at the end of this Old Testament and pointing toward the new, pointing toward the coming Messiah. And God, we thank you for the simple fact that we live in a time post the first coming of the Messiah and that we are waiting for his second coming, that we know what salvation is through this covenant of grace that you've given us. God, we thank you we belong to you. We thank you that you have blessed us with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. God, I pray for those that are here today. I pray for those that may listen to this message at a later time. And I just pray for those in our community and abroad that do not have ears to hear, that their ears would be, hope, but be open to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've given us. God, I pray that you use us in a similar fashion that you used John the Baptist to prepare the hearts, that seeds may be planted and that they grow to bear great fruit, that your name be boldly proclaimed to not only this generation, but generations to come until the return of your Son. We look forward to that day. I pray that you guide us toward having a mind of knowing that all righteousness and all judgment all perfection is found in you and in your Son, and not in ourselves, but that you shepherd us along with the days that you've given us. I pray that we be obedient to you, and we look forward to your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you have to see it. So as I've already alluded to, Chapter 4 is a continuation of the thought of the book of Malachi, obviously. Uh, but I just want to stop for a moment 
and talk about the significance of the portion of Scripture that we are in right here. Okay? So, we're in Malachi. We're in chapter 4. We are in the last chapter of the Old Testament of God's perfect canon. Okay? We have no reason this morning to question whether or not there is a book that needed to be added between Malachi and Matthew. There is nothing in this time span that needs to be added to God's Word to make it any more perfect than it already is. It's already the perfect, infallible Word of God. We're not missing anything from chapter 4 of Malachi that we need to have before we get to Matthew chapter 1. We've got it. We've got it. And the beauty of the words, and I'm already getting goosebumps, the beauty of the words of Malachi chapter 4, it's just astounding, and I hope that I can give you a glimpse into this this morning, of what he's pointing to, what God is using Malachi to point to, in that gap of time, that, that intertestament period between the new and the old, between the old and the new, of the coming Messiah, and of the forerunner that will come and proclaim and make ready the path for the Messiah to enter into this earthly realm. Okay? So as I've mentioned before, the opening three verses of chapter 4 continues from the final verses of chapter 3 that Chad had covered last week. Now, many of the people at this time have spoken openly against the goodness of God, even going to the extent of saying that there's no thing that's profitable for me to actually serve God. It says in, in verse 14 of chapter 3, you have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we should keep your or keep his ordinances and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wicked are raised up. They even tempt God and they go free. It would be very easy for us through many portions of scripture to point out, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. I'm so glad I'm not like the people mocking God in Malachi chapter 3. Or to think, I'm so glad that I'm not like a Pharisee. I'm so thankful that I'm not like a Sadducee. While at the same time completely neglecting the issues in our own hearts toward God that might fly under the radar because we've decided that the pecking order outside of ourselves dictates where we rank rather than looking introspectively through the use of the Holy Spirit to see where we err greatly in our own lives and in our own walk. So it's easy to look at them and say, how dare they say that to God? But yet, how many times have we done similar things? When we look at them, we see that in their own disobedience, they question why God has not blessed them while completely ignoring the fact that they have disobeyed his ordinances and his commands and his ways. How many times have you disciplined your children, or how many times were you disciplined as a child, and you're thinking, well, why are they doing this to me? Or your child thinks, why, are they, why is my parent doing this to me, as if they haven't done anything at all, because all they can think about is what's happening to them at that time, rather than what led up to what took place to begin with. Why are you not blessing us? Why are you doing this to me? Why is it that they seem to be getting away with everything, but yet I am in this condition or I am in this state? One of the most beautiful parts of chapter 4, especially the first three verses, is that they're not getting away with anything. They're not getting away with anything. 
blessing that's shown to us, we see, is not from anything that we ourselves have done, but what he has done through us. They've ignored this. It's similar, as I was studying the passages, it made me think about the situation with Cain and Abel, correct? You see a difference here between the sacrifice given to God by Cain and the sacrifice given to God by Abel. Both bring a sacrifice, and the issue was not that Cain brought meat and that Abel brought vegetables, and God's a vegetarian, so therefore he was happy with Abel. It was not the product itself, it was the heart behind what was given. And what have we read through Malachi? What were the people, what, were the, what was the nation of Israel giving God? Giving them that which was sick, that which was lame, that which was not the first fruits, but far from being the first fruits. And then they asked themselves boldly, why has God done this to me? They know what he's asked. They've given less. And then they blame him in the act. So similar to Cain. The final chapter of Malachi reminds us that the people that the people that God will deal with wickedly and righteously, he will deal with them perfectly. He'll deal with them on his time. He'll deal with them in his way. And he will be sending, and he has sent, the Messiah. This is great news to the believer, but this is terrifying to the unbeliever. This is good news, and this is terrible news. As it says in verse 5, the day is coming, or before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. How can something be great and then be dreadful? So, if you're following along in your bulletin, I'll go ahead and jump right into the first point this morning. And that is this. There is misery for the wicked and there is joy for the righteous. Misery for the wicked and joy for the righteous. And we're going to focus right now on verses 1 through 3. And I'll reread this just quickly, okay? For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, that all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow like Grow fat like salt-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. The day that he does what? The day that he's coming. The day that he's coming and he will judge the wicked and the righteous. That he will burn up the wicked like a burning oven. This is not the first time that the symbolism of an oven has been used in scripture up to this point. Now, just to kind of get a little bit of a perspective, and I guess something that I had thought about while working outside this week, did many of you all work outside very much this week? It was awesome, wasn't it? It was not awesome. <laughs> I was trying to think of an animal that it would be awesome for. I'm not sure it was awesome for any animal. It was terrible, okay? We were getting up even earlier than we normally do, trying to get everything done before it was going to be a real fill of 105 or whatever it was going to end up being. It was miserable, wasn't it? It was miserable. But were you able to do things that you needed to do that, you, that were really, really necessary? Were you able to do 
those things in that heap? And the answer is yes. If you had animals that needed to be taken care of, you were able to do that. If you had a responsibility that really needed to be done at the time, you were able to do that, correct? But when you compare that heat to the heat of an oven, the heat that we had this week was absolutely nothing in comparison. The heat was miserable. It was not enjoyable. It was uncomfortable. But it was bearable. You may not have liked it, but it was bearable. This burning like an oven, this return, this judgment that will burn up the wicked as stubble is not a fire that is bearable. It's not a fire that's quenched by going inside the air conditioning. If we had a week this summer, we've had a great summer. We had a week this summer where we were thankful for AC. I think that this week was a week that we were thankful for it. We have a way of escape. We have creature comforts. There will be no means of escape that day outside of the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no escape. There is no AC. There is no fan. There is no other way other than Him. He is the only mediator. He is the only option. He is the only escape. And we must get out of the way of ourselves to see that. So I know that we live in a time where many people don't really enjoy discussing the judgment of God. Okay? We don't really like to talk about the hard things. Our, our society likes to be perverse. We see that in movies and TV. We see that, in, or we hear that in our music. We see that everywhere. The perversity is just absolutely rampant. But whenever it comes to things that actually address the core issues of our nation or of our society or globally, we try to soften the edges or we try to distract and deter from whatever the real issue is because it's too hard to discuss. It's too hard to see. Now, several of us went and saw the movie Sound of Freedom together, and I'm so glad that we did, and I'm so thankful for that movie shining a bright light in a dark, dark area that many people don't want to talk about. And it's similar from the pulpit when it comes to the judgment of God. But I'll commend you this. One of the most loving things that we can do as followers of Jesus Christ is to discuss the judgment of God that will occur and is occurring and has occurred throughout time. He is judging. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is righteous. And a righteous judge is not going to let you go scot-free if you are guilty. Someone will pay for the sin debt that you and I have acquired. It will either be Christ himself or it will be you. There's no escaping that. There's no escaping that. But although it's hard to discuss, it doesn't mean that we don't need to discuss it. How would an unbeliever, how would an unbeliever in your life, how would an unbeliever anywhere know that they need a Savior if they have no idea what it is that they need to be saved from? So I ask you this, is self-help Christianity enough? Is self-esteem enough? Is reading more books about how to become prosperous in this life enough? Is having your best life now the goal? How foolish. We can't help ourselves apart from Christ. And we'll see that when we read verses 2, or verse 2. We'll see that. The help that we receive, the growth that we receive, is not because of a book that we read, or not because a man spoke something to us. 
in some revival meeting, it's not from anything that we can send somebody money for that we're going to be blessed tenfold because we gave some guy money for his plane. That's not what it is. It all comes through the triune God. All blessings come through the triune God. So how loving would I be as a father if I never warned my children of the danger around them? How loving would you be as a parent to not warn your children? How loving would you be as a brother or a sister not to warn your sibling of things? God warns us all through Scripture, and Christ himself does not skip over the wrath to come. Christ himself does not act as if hell is just some imaginary thing that is something you don't need to concern yourself with. People argue and debate all the time about whether or not Christ talked more about heaven or Christ talked more about hell. I'll be honest with you. I'm not concerned about which one he spoke about more. I think that we should be concerned that he spoke about both. Rather than worrying, well, he talked about hell more than he talked about heaven, so we should be so focused on this, or he talked about heaven more than he did hell, so hell, people who say that he talked about hell more, that's just a scare tactic. Who cares? People could say, well, when he said this, he wasn't actually talking about hell. He was talking about something. I don't care. He talked about both because both are reality. And he came to save the lost. He came to his sheep. It says in Matthew 25 that he's going to do what? He's going to separate his sheep from his goats. So he better warn. And he did that. <laughs> and he fulfilled all of that. And it's being explained to us clearly here in the last chapter of the Old Testament before you have this gap of time of the coming of Christ himself in the flesh. This is the last chapter. This is it. This is the period at the end. And what's being discussed with the prophet of Malachi, there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. There will be a judgment of Israel and there will be a judgment of the world and there will be a judgment of you and I one day. I don't say that to scare you. I say that because it's here. So, yes, we're still on verse 1. So what will be the fuel for his fire? It says right here, all the crowd, yes, all who do wickedly will be stumbled. They would have understood the imagery here. I'm sure... Knowing where we live and knowing you all well enough, everybody in here has made a fire at some point, right? Everybody's made a fire, okay? How long does stubble last in that fire? It don't last. It don't last. Now, you may have a large fire and you might end up having pieces of logs that are left on the fringes of the fire after it's all burned down and the stubble's gone. It doesn't remain. It's burnt up and it's devoured quickly. It says here, And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and will leave them neither root nor branch. We had a tree in our backyard that I was really, really glad was growing and doing well. So what happens whenever you're excited about a tree? What happens to the tree? It breaks and falls down. It snaps, right? Like, this is so awesome. We had dirt work done. We're going to leave these two trees. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have all kinds of shade. It's exactly what we planned. And it was awesome. 
for the however many months that it was like that, until a wind blew out of the north, caught it the wrong way, and snapped it over. Just completely snapped it. I had to drag it off. There's only about this much of the tree left, and I know that I'm probably, I'm probably supposed to go out there and cut it down and do all this stuff, but I just want something to be there while I let another tree grow up, so I'm just letting it say. I'm just letting it say, okay? It's doing something. Yeah, it's got all kinds of foliage that's growing out of the base. I don't know what its plan is, but I'll tell you this. The grace that I've shown that tree to say and do whatever it's trying to do is not what is being described here. There will be no root. There will be no branch. There is nothing left that can spring up new life. It is gone. It's burnt up. It's devoured. It is incinerated. It's done with. It's gone. It's not that tree that's left in the yard. There is no hope left here. This is an unquenchable fire. It's devoured up. It's gone. So who is the fuel? Or what is the fuel? Those who are stiff-necked in their rebellion against God and do not submit to Him or the rule of Jesus Christ. Now, that should be pretty clear, those who are stiff-necked in their rebellion. But sometimes being stiff-necked in rebellion looks differently than another time. I don't want you today to walk away from this and think that those who are stiff-necked in rebellion, I have no need to worry about myself or a loved one because they're not out drinking and driving. They're not out uh, cheating on their spouse. They're not out doing this. They're not out doing that. They're an overall good person. Let's not fool ourselves and remember that those who do not submit to Christ, who do not submit to His authority, they are being stiff-necked. And many of us, that was us for no telling how long. Being stiff-necked in our rebellion, refusing to see the light that He was shining. Pray. Submit. Bend the knee. Today's the day. Go to Psalm 21, verses 8 through 9. <clears throat> your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. Fire shall devour them. The word of God is consistent. The word of God is clear. Although it may not placate to what we want to be true, it is true. His word supersedes our own. And I've had to learn that over time. God, unlike you and I, knows the hearts and the minds of every man, woman, and child. And he makes no mistake in his judgment. How many times have you and I discerned a situation and been completely wrong? Whether it be a national headline that we're supposed to react to immediately. I hope that we've learned from that that we don't know all the details. And that oftentimes details are kept from us. How many times have we drawn a conclusion and we don't have all the details on large issues and small issues? Understand that God does not judge these situations the same way that you and I do. We are fallible 
We are not infinite in our knowledge and our wisdom, yet He is. He makes no mistake when it comes to His judgment. That He will destroy the stubble, but then compare that to the purification of gold and silver and precious metals that are used through Scripture. We started reading and studying through 1 Peter as a family the other night. And it was really, really encouraging to hear my kids rattle off different portions of, of Scripture that connected to the beginning of First Peter when they talk about going through trials and the purification that comes out of that, more precious than gold and silver. And to hear them say, like Joseph, like Daniel, yes, yes, absolutely. They're purified through it. They're strengthened through it. You know people in your own life who have gone through these things and they've been strengthened. And you know people who have gone through things and that stubble have been burnt up and are not able to rebuild it afterward. The symbolism of the stubble versus the silver and what ends up happening on the other end of the fire is just so clear. But the true composition of a man will be known in that day of judgment. Man will not be able to question God's motives or his righteousness as they did in chapter 3. They think they know better than him, but they know nothing in comparison to his infinite wisdom and knowledge. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like salt-fed calves. Now, I hope that the imagery or the example that I'm going to give here makes sense. It makes sense to me. And I know that several of you guys are hunters and outdoorsmen and enjoy being outside. But when you go deer hunting or turkey hunting, the odds are, wherever you're hunting, you've been there before. You're familiar with the surroundings. You know where you're going. If you walk in blindly, your hunt's probably not going to be all that successful. But even though you know the woods, when you walk through the woods at night or early, early, early before the sun actually breaks over the tree line, the woods look a lot different in the dark than they do in the day, don't they? And how many times, those of you who have experienced this, how many times do you think as the sun is beginning to rise and you're in that deer stand or you're in that turkey blind, you are thoroughly convinced that that object that you see out there in front of you is totally a deer, totally a turkey. It's exactly what I'm looking for. And then as the sun begins to break over the trees, you realize it was a stump, right? It was a branch. It was a limb. It was not what I thought that it was. I was wrong because it wasn't illuminated to me at the time, correct? Golly. There's no telling how many times I sat there staring at something thinking, I can't wait to get enough light to see through this scope. And then I get the light and I think, I wish I didn't have the light and knew what I know now. Right? Is this not the same way for those who love the Lord, those who have been transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit, that the Son Himself has risen, illuminated things in our lives that we did not understand before and that we were completely blind and ignorant to? We didn't see it. We didn't know. We didn't understand. We were so dead in our sins that it wasn't until he made us alive in himself that we were able to discern and see that which he calls good to actually be good and to know and admit that we were wrong in what we had discerned to be true to ourselves in our darkened state. 
the light of Christ illuminates the soul and it regenerates the man to see what was already hidden or what was previously hidden to him. He not only exposes what was dark, but he heals that which was once dead. He regenerates. No dead man has saved himself. No dead man has regenerated himself. Yet, the same is true for any man who, man or woman or child who is dead in their sins, cannot save themselves, but must be born again, must be indwelled through the work of the Holy Spirit, must be restored to the newness of life. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 says this. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. The healing comes through Him. The victory comes through Him. He is the Son of Righteousness and He shall arise and we shall be healed through His stripes. We're not healed through a 10-step program. We're healed through the submission of Him and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, growing us in sanctification. His healing, as we see here, with the discussion, or with the description of growing fat like salt-fed calves, which I love that. That's so awesome. But growing fat like salt-fed calves, and that you shall go out, that you shall go out, this healing found in Christ, it liberates the believer, and it creates an overwhelming joy and a life more abundant. To be held in captivity, to be held in cage, and then to be released out abound. And it makes me think of whenever I let our, our rabbits or our geese out after they've been pinned up for a while, the geese, they they act like you've just tortured them because you put them in a building for 10 minutes. Okay? So they're always fired up to get out. But the rabbits are the same way. We were talking to our kids about this the other night. Um, the first thing that the rabbits do as soon as you get them out of the cage and you get them on the ground, what do they do? They buck and they kick around, don't they? They are so excited to be released. They're living a life more abundantly because they're able to do what they were created to do. They run around. They enjoy themselves. I guess you could say that they frolic. Okay? There is a joy that they have. And yet the same thing for those who have been healed through Jesus Christ and the stripes that he bore are able to live a life more abundantly, more joy-filled and liberated because his burden is light. Yes, you may be persecuted. Expect persecution. Expect rejection. And walk in that and know the comfort that although you may not understand why it is the way that it is, that he is good through all of it. It's the opposite of what they're doing in chapter 3, correct? Oh, we love God, but we give him everything less than. And why does he do this to us? But on the contrary, we abound more greatly as we've been created to do because His burden is light. And we're called to this. And we walk in the freedom. And we know that He's a righteous judge. And we know that all of our dependency is on Him. Not of our own doing. That's the most liberating thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It's to spend the first, I don't know, 
22 years of my life thinking that any success I could ever acquire was dependent upon me and then seeing where that got me and realizing that any success that I would ever be able to have would be through Him and not of me and to get out of my own way. A life more abundantly lived. It wasn't anything I did. I did nothing. I still wanted the control. But yet He healed me through that. He saved me through that. And He blessed me because He did those things. Not of anything I did. I assure you of that. In verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You may say, that doesn't sound very kind. To which I would say, okay. <laughs> it may not sound very kind. But it is right and it is just. And we may be looking at the symbolism that's given here through a lens that doesn't really make much sense because we live in a time that's, that's removed to this. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit of context here. And I did not know about this until, thankfully, I studied. So it was common at that time you have a lot of ash. There's a lot of fires. When you're cooking, when you're, when you're staying warm, when you're boiling water, there's a lot of fires. And if there's a lot of fire, there's going to be, as a result, a lot of ash. Correct? So if you're going to have a lot of ash, you're probably going to be a little bit innovative. Of how am I going to use this ash since I have an abundance of it? So what do they do? They used it for walking paths as a way to soften the blow on your feet and also as a way to attempt to keep dry muddy paths. Or to dry out muddy paths, to smoothen the way, to dry the way, to make the way easier for the people who would walk through there. Does that make sense? Okay? So when it's saying that they shall trample the wicked and they shall be as ashes under their feet, they see the semblance of the smoother path, the dry path, the easier path being made through the use of what's been done. And on that day, or on the day that I do this, this will be the host. So knowing that this victory, this triumph that's taking place was not through any means of the righteous people, but it was the work of God himself. He's the one that triumphs. The victory of God is extended only to us by his grace and not through any doing of our own. So the second point of the bulletin is just this. Keep the law of Moses. Keep the law of Moses. And we're focusing on verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Now, I've already said this before, but I'll say it again. What a great capstone to the Old Testament for what we have here in Malachi chapter 4. You have all of the history of the Jewish people. You have all of the prophecy, major and minor prophets. You have the law. You have the Psalms. You have everything here. And then the conclusion of it, or the culmination of it, is pointing back to the first author of it all, Moses himself. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Wow. The last book of the Old Testament, and its second to last verse, refers back to the author of the first book of the Old Testament being Moses, the first writer 
And the fact that these last two verses, or last, sorry, three verses, four, five, and six, point us back to what is the point of the whole canon of the Old Testament? Law, gospel. In the last three verses, what is it all about? Law, gospel. Obey the law, obey the statutes and the judgments. Obey in a way that you were not doing before because your obedience was shallow. And let's be honest, shallow obedience is no obedience. You've got 1,200 years apart from the writings of Moses to the, the prophecy given to Malachi. But yet everything in that 1,200 year time period is consistent and all pointing to one thing. That there is a Savior for fallen man, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, to which the entire New Testament will be about. 1,200 years of writing, one message. Why there one message? Because there's one author. There is one author. There is a perfect Holy Spirit. There is a perfect God who is working out his will perfectly. Not according to how we would have it be, but according to how he would have it be, which is greater than anything you and I can imagine for ourselves. Because we do not have infinite knowledge. We do not have infinite wisdom. We do not know a fraction of what he knows. Let's look back real quick to Malachi 3. 13 and 14. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, Have you, or what have we spoken against you? You have said, It is useless to serve God. What profit is it for us to keep his ordinance? And that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. What profit is it for us to keep his ordinances? It seems that their complaint of God raising up the wicked and that it's used to serve God is a direct correlation to them having their eyes focused and pulled away from eternal things and pointed directly straight at the temporal. What does it benefit me to follow his statutes? What does it benefit me to follow his ordinances when I see those who are living in outright rebellion that have way more fans than me. That have way more popularity than me. That have way more success than me. That have less heartache and heartbreak and trial and temptation than me. Think of what we just read in verses 1 and 2 of what will happen to the righteous and what will happen to the wicked on that day. How in the world, and I'm, talking, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about us. How in the world can we authentically believe that it would be useless to obey His law and to follow His word if our eyes are on the eternal? I can see where you would think it's useless if you're focused on the temporary. I can see how you can think that lying and cheating and stealing and doing whatever it takes to claw and fight your way to the top would be profitable in the here and now. I can see that. I can see the justification for that. 
But guys, I'm speaking to you heart to heart. No one in this room can authentically think that disobeying the law will benefit a single person, ourselves included, in things eternal. This is to be heavenly minded. We gain nothing by knowingly disobeying these things. We gain nothing. We gain the temporal, but the temporal is fleeting. It will be eaten by moth, it will be sold off, it will be forgotten. It will be useless. It will be useless. Keep our minds focused on that which is eternal. That's what is being said here. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him, because this is good. This will prepare you for the Messiah that is coming. This will point you toward him. When we judge our prosperity and success the same way as unbelievers do, then we are living as unbelievers do. We can't measure prosperity and success in the same way. And we begin to paint ourselves as victims, do we not? They have and I have not. He's been bad to me. Oftentimes, isn't it a matter of the circumstances and situations that we put ourselves in? And the secondary causes that come from that? Yes, it is. It is. We're not victims of anything, especially if we belong to him. We're not victims. We're not victims. But if we believe that we are, then our resentment is definitely going to take root. And what does it say in Scripture that happens when sin is taking root? It grows to full size and it brings with it death and decay and rot. To forget the law is to blatantly transgress against it. He's diagnosed here our issue. And through Malachi, he's identified the cure. So I'll ask you this. What can heal every person? What can heal a person? What can heal a family? What can heal a church? What can heal a nation? Is it a president? Is it a new global network? Is it... I can't think of anything that can heal the needs of an individual, a family, a church, a nation, apart from the Word of God. What can heal and restore apart from the Word of God? I would love to know if there's anything else, but there is nothing else. There's nothing else. We have everything that we need in it. But the question is, will we follow it? Will we live it out? It's all we need. And that's what he's pointing to. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. <clears throat> Spoiler alert, that's John the Baptist. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the third point here is to anticipate the coming Messiah. Anticipate the coming Messiah. We're going to go to John 1, 19 through 27. <clears throat> now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? 
he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? That you may, that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, What then do you baptize if you are not the Christ? Or why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. He is the forebearer. He is the one that's coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. <clears throat> now, I mentioned this before. The imagery that's given here is the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the, the first coming of Christ, the judgment of ourselves, and then the final judgment and the second coming of Christ all culminated in these scriptures here. So, the preaching of reconciliation between God and man is what's described here, that there will be someone that's coming as a forerunner to make straight the path, the lone voice crying in the wilderness, saying, Behold, the Son of God is here, and He is the man, Jesus Christ. He's preaching a gospel of reconciliation. And it was foretold that He would be here, that He would come, and then He comes. Another fulfillment of many prophecies. And we know... <clears throat> That in 1 Timothy 2.5, the man that he's describing, the only mediator between God and man, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man. That is the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. There is one way. There is one truth. There is one life. It's him. There is no way to bypass him. There is one option. This is, this is not... Oprah Winfrey theology that all paths are good as long as you're a quote-unquote good person. Well, that's flawed from its beginning because you and I both know that we're not good apart from Christ. There's one way, and John is pointing it directly to him. He's the forerunner pointing at him and coming before him and the great day, great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that this man will turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children and children to their fathers, preparing the hearts of both the young and the old. And I'm going to give this, I'm quickly going to give this example and just have you think about this for a second. Why would we turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers? We could spend a lot of time just focusing on this one part right here. But I'll ask you this. If the hearts of the old and the young are going to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah, should there and would there be great wide division between the two when he comes if their hearts are going to be preserved and ready for his coming? No. No. They will not be on polar opposite spectrums. They would be, there would be a coming together in unity to become brothers in Christ or for the daughter or for the mother to be sisters in Christ. There would be a coming together of such, not a widening of the gap between. 
You see what I mean? This is a readying of a people. This is why it's so important for us to have this unity in our homes centered around Christ. Now, we're going to have this unity because where there are people, there are problems, right? You guys are the people. It's not us. It's them, correct? Okay? There's going to be issues. There's going to be divisions. But we should see this coming together at this time. So, of one mind. And understand that this coming together is not coming together for evil reasons. This is not a coming together for any, any reason of malice or anything like that. What does it profit a son and his father if they come together only for evil schemes? It doesn't profit either one of them. It profits neither, neither one of them. So I'll conclude with this. You would turn to Matthew chapter 3. Begin landing the plane. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. So this is the preaching of John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So I'll leave you with this question. What will you do with Jesus? I was thinking of that hymn last night. It was written in 1905, but it really strikes to the core of what this is saying. We see in Malachi chapter 4, we see that his judgment will be, that God's judgment will be a perfect judgment. We want to be on the right side of this, correct? We see that we're called to keep the law of Moses in obedience to God, and we're called to anticipate the coming Messiah. The Messiah is telling he will come again. So the question once again is, what will you do with Jesus? Here's one of the verses of the hymn. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? And I'll leave you with this quote from J.I. Packer from Knowing God. I feel like this just sums it all up. The character of God is the guarantee that all the wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of, the, of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment arrives, retribution will be exact and no problems of cosmic unfairness will remain to haunt us. God is the judge, so all justice will be done. 
you would pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning that you've given us. We thank you for yet again another time to go into your word and to find that it's so deep that we cannot fully grasp all of it on our own. God, I thank you for this book of Malachi. I thank you for our time of studying it, to understand it better, to see that it all points to your Son. God, I pray that you work in the hearts and the minds of us as we go through this week, that you would call us to action, that you would make us who belong to you be more and more obedient. God, I pray that you work in the hearts and heal with the healing balm that you provide to the hearts of those who need to call upon you to bend the knee to you, to submit to you and to your ways. Because your ways are perfect and far greater than anything that we could ever desire or come up with for ourselves in this world. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us. We pray for the persecuted church. We pray for our brothers and sisters around this county, surrounding county, state. We just pray that we see your kingdom growing. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at New Life Preaching Podcast. We welcome you to return each Lord's Day as we study the book of Malachi and the call to return to the Lord.